Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show takes guests in the barrel, behind the scenes with the people who've been there, done that, and seen the results. Revenue Builders covers best practices for scaling and growing your business while sharing the pitfalls to avoid. Great conversation, solid interviews, tangible takeaways to help you succeed. If you enjoy the content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John McMahon. I'm joined by the King of Charlotte, the big man, John A. Kaplan. Cap, what's going on? Hey, buddy. How are you? Good to see you, dude. Doing good. Looking clean and dapper in your white shirt there, buddy. Feeling all good, dressed, buddy. All dressed up, long sleeves and everything. Where are you? I got, I got, hey, I got the, I got a financial presence on the podcast today. I got to be looking, I need all the advantages I can get. <laughs> looking good. Well, Cap, so our guest is a four-time chief financial officer, started his career as the VP of finance at PTC. Since then, he's been the CFO at IM Logic, which was acquired by Symantec, Activio, Log Me In, which was acquired by Francisco Partners for $4.3 billion, I think. Yes. And now he's the right. CFO at Drift, which is a conversational marketing and sales platform. Cap, please help me welcome my friend and CFO, Jim Kelleher. Jimmy, Jimmy, it's good to see you, buddy. Really, really good to see you. And thanks for being with us today, man. Pleasure to be here, gentlemen. Pleasure to be here. Good to see you, Jim. Good to see you. Hey, Jim, let's, uh, we'd like to pull the curtain back a little bit on your perspective as a CFO, particularly for the salespeople listening to this show. So as a CFO, can you tell the group like some of the top things, like top three, top four things that a CFO actually worries about? Well, number one, um, Mac and, and Cap, is uh, running out of cash, right? And so, so to the extent you run out of cash in this venture world, you know, you, you, you don't got a business, right? And so we're managing cash, you know, pretty closely as CFOs. And and might be a little bit different. Logman was a public company. It's a little different in the public environment than the private environment. But but that that's the number one thing. Don't run out of cash. The second is, you know, when to... When to put your foot on the gas, right? When to scale a company? When, when does it make sense that you go invest, right? And a lot of times, you know, that's not real clear, right? And so you got to experiment a little bit uh, sometimes. But but it goes hand in hand with running out of cash. But hey, when do I step on the gas? And when have I proven this business model? And then I think the third thing is, regardless of when you step on the gas, and I've been in high-tech environments where it's, you know, go, 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 make sure you're building a business model that's going to scale, right? That's going to scale and that's going to make money at some point. Because, you know, one of three things is going to happen to your company. Um, you're going to go out of business, which, which you really don't want that to happen. You're going to get acquired by somebody. Typically, that's going to be acquired by a public company, right? And a public company is going to look for a model that scales. Or three, you're going to have the privilege, uh, you know, of being able to take a company to a public market. And so I think those three things are important that a CFO continue to focus on. Yeah. Well, let's talk about scaling a little bit then, because you've helped scale a number of companies. And a lot of times people might view the G&A and finance department as 
just groups that kind of get in a way to slow things down when you're trying to scale. Like, so how do you uh, react to make sure that your departments and everybody else is helping to support, you know, the scaling of the company? Yeah. I mean, I, so I've, as you said, I'm a full-time CFO. Um, and, and prior to that, I was at, at PTC with you guys. Um, in all those cases, I had, I've, I have had, and that's, you know, 25, 30 years of experience, right? I've had the same mission uh, for my group all along, and that's to help the company grow. And that means grow its profits, its people, its revenue, um, and eventually its market value, right? Those are the four things. And so my groups, while we have to control the business and finance, the objective is to get a company to grow. Because if a company doesn't grow, then, then there's not going to be any need for a finance organization or a GNA organization, right? And so my mission and my group have, have always been around that. Now, we need to do it. I mean, our job is, you know, there, there's people called controllers in our organization. They're called controllers because they control the business, right? And so our job is to control the business. So we have to make sure we're, we're not doing silly things with our cash. We're not doing things that don't make sense longer term. Um, but our objective is really to grow the business. And, and I have all my organizations kind of focused around that. And the mission's been pretty much the same for, for 30 years. How do you help a company grow? And, and how do you help, in particular, a sales organization or revenue uh, um, uh, line grow? Because that's, the, that's what you're driving to scale a company. Yeah. But when you're scaling, Jim, everybody's asking for heads. Give me more heads, especially in a software company, because that's really what it's all about. So yeah. how do you guys balance, guys, gals, balance, you know, who gets the heads and who doesn't get Yeah, good question. Um, we look at a few things. Um, I, I once did a business budget with, with, with Log Me In where it was, you know, we did, um, we did one of these because the, the CEO was... Um, he believed in asking um, the organizations what they wanted. So we gave it the, you know, what do you think, right? Um, and and asked people to come back with their, you know, headcounts and what their needs. And it, it was like off the charts, right? It was something that we were never going to be able to do. Whether it was in development or whether it was in sales or whether it was in marketing, everybody came with this wish list of stuff to do. Um, so, so you have to get the executive team sort of bought into a, uh, uh, look, guys and gals, we are building a business to scale. We are not building a sales org. We're not building a dev org. We're building a business to scale and get everybody built around that 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 theory, right? With that, they come back with a little bit more. Okay, you know, here's the essential headcount that I need. We've done it by giving people dollar amounts, right, and say like, here's here's how much you can spend. We've done it by dictating. Look, when you're in the public markets. Eventually, you know, I had a public investor tell me like margins matter, right? And you have to increase your margins in the public markets. And mm -hmm. therefore you can only spend so much in sales or only spend so much in marketing or so much in development. So it's a little bit dictated then of here's what we're going to spend next year. You guys go off and figure out how you want to allocate it. We, you got to balance all that stuff and doing a plan. What we do invest in, look to invest in from a sales perspective, and we did it at, at PPC very, very effectively, was, hey, who's, who, the groups that are productive are the groups that we're going to give more money to. And so you can look at certain productivity levels and say, okay, you know, this group, whether it's in the East or the West or an international group, is going to get more heads and more money and, nobody, and others aren't going to get it until they get to that point. Yeah, and I call that feeding success. Yeah, you, know, you have to invest where you're getting the highest productivity, and let the uh, the rest of the groups get up to that productivity level before you will invest in 
those yeah, the biggest, the biggest area that is a question mark in my mind still now, uh, 35 years later, whatever it is that I've been working is like in development, right? How much do you want to invest in development? And right. where do you want to invest in development? And uh, I think I've been at companies where we have um, not invested enough in development. And, you know, hindsight's 2020, and you can look back and think, Hey, had I, had I put more gas on development, we could have had a second or a third product line um, instead of trying to you know build a business model for the for the public markets, right? The development org is the toughest one, and in part it's a little bit because I don't understand it that much too. Like, how many people does it take to you know build the next platform? I mean, I don't know. You know, I I know how many people it takes to close the books and to do the finances and control the businesses. Um, or how many people it takes to run an HR department, but I don't know how many people it takes to build something like that. And right. with, with you guys in sales, you can monitor it based on what's the productivity, how many people are making quota, you know, how many people aren't, you know, what's my attrition like? There are certain metrics you can go figure out and monitor a little bit better than, than the development or yeah, and also you're getting feedback from sales and marketing and say, hey, the competition's doing this, our product's weak in this area. You might even hear it these days because it's sub subscription business. You might hear it from customer support. Hey, the product's really lacking these types of capabilities. But to your point, okay, how many people does it take to fix that? So how big is this investment to go fix this, right? So Jim, you know, many times people feel like the CFO, you know, the first thing you said is, you know, I got to protect the cash. So everybody thinks, CFO is, is Dr. No, you know, Ebenezer, you know, never want to spend any money on anything. But I know you as a CFO that you've really done a good job with executives helping to balance the potential investment need, you know, against the downside risk to the business. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, you're going to invest in something that wasn't in the budget and you got a bunch of, uh, you know, executives, sales leaders, marketing leaders, development leaders, whoever it is saying we need to make this investment, you got to go find the money, which means something's going to give. But, you know, so what's the downside versus the upside? How do you guys walk through stuff like that? Yeah, we try to do it as a team approach, right? And so, so what I really like to do with the executives is say, okay, look, I'll give a little in finance, but I need a little out of you, right? And so, so if, if and not necessarily meet halfway, but whatever, you know, you got to go fund some of this by pushing some heads out or pushing some things out, or you got to get someone else on the org to go do that, right? And, and I'll find some stuff, but you got to help me, right? And that creates a so-called like team environment where you don't have people like just coming to the trough to eat all the time, right? They are coming with requests, right? Um, that's one. Two is I always like to, to, to ask, like, what's the benefit we're going to get out of this? And is that benefit short term or long term? Right? Mm -hmm. And not necessarily dollarizing it, but it could be efficiency gains and stuff, right? That makes sense to go do, right? So if it makes sense for the business, I like to try to find a way to do it for the business. And then the third question or the second question I ask is, okay, what if we don't do this? Like, like you know, what happens, right? Um, uh, and, and you know, can we exist with it for a little bit longer period of time? And it depends, you know, where you're at in a business model perspective or a cash model perspective as to how flexible you can be too, right? Um, you know, there, there are some things like if you're in a public market and you're looking at guidance and you're going to miss a number, if you do something, mm, you know, that's a big question whether or not you would go do it, right? And you'd have to really balance that out. But there are other environments where it's, hey, I'm spending in advance of like really seeing the upside, 
that you make those decisions, right? So I, I, I try to balance those those kind of three or four things and making those decisions or talking through executives with how to make those decisions. Yeah. Hey, so Jim. now just one, one follow-up question here, Johnny, one follow-up question. So if an internal person comes to you, whether they're sales, marketing, support, development leader, they approach you with an investment idea. I guess from your perspective, the way that I've almost always felt about it, is this something that they just thought about when they were walking down the hall? <laughs> or is this something that they really have given a lot of thought to? So how, if somebody's going to be prepared with an, an investment idea and they're internal, what should they be prepared and how should they interface with you? Well, yeah, they, they, they certainly got to be prepared to answer the why, you know, why should we do this? What's the consequences of like doing it and not doing it and have gone through some thought process of not only the costs involved, but in a lot of cases, it's implementation, the implementation involved. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so you, you get particularly in this tech world now where you get a lot of people changing jobs, they look to kind of bring in the systems they had before because they're comfortable with it. Right. Uh, and, and maybe that's that's a, that that's the wrong thing to say, but I get the sense it's because they're comfortable with it. I, you know, I used that in my last place. I want to use it again. Well, like if we already have something that does ninety percent of it, then then I'm not going to go do it just because like you want to do it, right? Um, and and it's it's sort of those sort of they got to come with a thought process of having thought it out. I always like to push people to think about it like. Imagine it's your own money that you're spending. Like, would you go do right. it? Or would you go invest it, right? Right. So what I hear is that really you almost have to be 30, 40% better than the, the existing system in order for it to make any sense. And the well, second thing I heard you say is the implementation piece. And I think this is something that as salespeople, we always want to find a champion and that champion is not only going to help us sell, but that champion has to be the person that is probably responsible to the C-level on proper implementation and, and success of the product, right? Yep. Yeah. If there's, if, if it is that, and sometimes it doesn't get to the CFO here, here at Drift, a lot of things are handled by a guy who works for me as VP of finance. He does a lot of stuff, right? But if there's someone in finance involved, and typically there is, and even if it's budgeted, um, you gotta, you gotta own it. Right. And, and, um, you know, we're going to look back and think, okay, we did this. What do we get out of it? Did it work or did it not work? Right. And so we really try to push people to own it. Mm. Hey, Jim, I see companies every year go through budgeting processes. Um, I see the pain and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Um, your analogies of some people show up eating from the trough and some people just are just more mature from a budgeting perspective. I heard you give an interview and you talked about a frugal spend culture. And I really liked the way that you worded it. And you just alluded to it just a second ago when you said, I, I, I want the people to act as if it was their own money. Could you elaborate that a little bit more? And, um, and, and talk about what to expect if I'm a sales leader, if I'm a seller, if I'm asking for something, how to get in the right mindset as it relates to understanding the impact of my ask uh, and building a culture of frugal. And it's not cheap. Like when you say frugal, what do you mean by what do you mean by a culture like frugal spend culture? What do you mean by that? What I mean by frugal 
is um, spend it wisely, right? And and therefore, um, you know, don't just do flyers, right? To, to go do something, um, but spend the money wisely. And sure, we're gonna take some risk at some stuff uh, and some stuff might not work out and that's fine, you know, when we make those decisions. But I want people to have thought through what am I, why am I doing this? What do I get out of it? Do I need to do it? That, that's what I mean by frugal. And, and, you know, it's beyond the, you know, there, there is blatant waste at times, right? And typically that, that is, you know, through, um, I don't know, the, the, you see less of it now because people are traveling less now, but, but, but the old waste of, you know, doing things stupid like at, 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 at expensive dinners or expensive tickets to ball games and stuff like that. Um, that I, I think, you know, is, is waste as opposed to frugal. When I say frugal, it's usually around an investment you're making in the company or in the infrastructure or in a person that you expect to be paid back and have thought through it. That's what I mean by frugal. Do it in a right way. And you also said that you have a history of, this was interesting to me, where I know you've been a part of all in cultures, um, in in these times, I think you you described um, experimenting versus all in on big bets. Can you can you kind of share with our audience what you mean by that? Yeah, I, I think that's really important. And um, these guys at Drift really emphasize it, and they they call it experiments. Um, in in my previous slides, we didn't call it you know, so much as experiments, right? But what, what I mean by that is, let's say, and we're doing some of it here now at Drift, um, you get a product and you think you can verticalize it into some different markets, all right? Well, let's just not go full steam on the gas and hire vertical salespeople who are experts, whether it be the government or the healthcare or the banking industry or mm-hmm. education industry. Um, let's experiment. Let's see how we get some customers in that market. Let's take a couple of salespeople, focus them on on maybe on that market, not necessarily exclusively, but let's experiment and see if we can get it to stick. And if it's stick, you know, let's go for it. Uh, You know, that's one experiment approach. Um, The others, and I think we did it, we've done it well at every company I've been at, but we really did it well at PTC, I think. is internationally, experiment internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, that that some people, again, once they get something working, think, oh, yeah, I gotta be everywhere and in every market to dominate the market, right? But, but I always like to take things in steps. So let's get successful on your home turf. Let's get successful in your home market, your vertical. And then let's figure out where to go next. And let's experiment on that, right? whether it's going to English speaking Europe, whether it's going to English speaking APAC, or maybe it is going to the continent in Europe, right? But like, like, let's do it a bit at a time so that if it doesn't work, you haven't made a big bet, right? And you can kind of pull your foot off. If it doesn't work, you understand why it doesn't work and maybe you can self-correct in the middle of that, that, that process, right? That's what I mean by experimenting. I think it's really important in, in today's age. I think it's really, really important. In today's age, um, I might as well just jump to it. Uh, the anxiety and panic of the markets and capital raises, and like we're recording this in May of 2022, there is this really wonky 
inflation model, really kind of difficult to figure out what's going to happen uh, in the future. And I'm sure you've seen this movie before. What in, what insights can you give us right now as it relates to um, decisions? If you're inside of a company to maybe help you understand some financial decisions that either need to be brought, you know, uh, controlled a little bit versus accelerated in the markets that we're in right now and the economic situation that we're in right now. Could you give us some insights on how you're dealing with that? Yeah, I think you just got to be, I'd say, patient and a little smarter, right? And, and I'll give you two specifics from my career. Log me in. We filed to go public in, in October of 2008 um, before the wow. crisis, right? Um, wow. We were on public for 18 months and we went public in July of 2009. Uh, after the markets opened. We were one of four technology companies to get out after the markets opened. Open Table went before us, we went right after them. We knew, um, uh, we had a model that was producing cash and we had a model that was working okay. We knew, look, we were, we were a good company and we were doing the right things. And we were in the mode of, okay, let's just settle, let's relax, right? Like, like you know, uh, we will get this company into the public markets at a certain point at the right time, right? And so, yeah, um, did we pull back on headcount? Sure, because um, we weren't sure what was going to happen. But we we stuck to our to our guns for what um, what we had. Another good example here is is Drift, right? Um, we were a four hundred person company when the pandemic hit in 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 March of two thousand twenty, and we went from a in person culture, like hundred percent in person office on yeah. March eleventh to like 100% digital on March you know, 12th, and we remain 100% digital. We had built a company and a team that we really like believed in and thought it could take us to the next level. We had enough cash, we felt that it could get us through 18 months, and we did the same thing, we were patient. Um, and we had other tech companies here in Boston that laid off 25, 50% of their workforce two weeks later, right? We didn't lay off anybody in, in Drift. Um, and because what we had believed was we had the employee base we wanted and we believed in investing in that, uh, in that employee base. So we were patient through the process, right? Um, and in fact, our business accelerated through the pandemic um, mm. because of the move to, to, to digital. So I think in this time, look, I, I, I went through the, the web crash, the banking crash, the pandemic <laughs> crash. Like all markets like will come back, right? I feel that I, I told the people in March 2020, they were all panicked here. We did a company meeting. I was like, just relax with your investments. Don't start flipping your 401ks and stuff like that. If you have some extra cash, look for an opportunity to invest in good, solid companies, right? In the public markets. And right. you know, it comes back, right? And, and the same is going on now, right? It, 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 it'll probably be volatile for a period of time, but longer term, you know, good companies get to the public markets, good companies are successful, good companies are bought. So create a good company, create a good culture, create a scalable model, and you'll be just fine. Hey, last question on that, Johnny, to follow up. If yeah, you were sure. given advice, if you were given advice, I think I met one of your uh, one of your kids while we were working at uh, while we were working at Drift, if I recall. So if you were giving one of your children advice on what you would call a great company. What are your, from a financial perspective, what are your def, what's your definition today of a great financially sound company? 
one that has a business model that they have proven that can scale, one that is dominant in a market, one that is innovative and continuing like to invest, uh, and one that has good built a, a collaborative team culture in its employee base, right? And, and I think if I would add one, one that is led by strong leaders, you know, at the top. I, I think those, that is a great company. And there are lots of them out there today. Yeah. All right, Jim, scenario. Quarter just ended or the let's even the month just ended. And you're going to go look at some of the metrics and the results. Where's your eye go? Like what, what metrics is your eye going to immediately? Well, we do things by quarter versus versus month here, John, as, as, as you know, and I probably as you have done. So we do it by, by quarter. We don't we look at it by month, but we don't get too excited by month. We're, we're very right. focused by quarter. The, the first is the top line, right? What is bookings done? Right. Yes, is bookings grown, right? How much has new business grown versus expansion grown, uh, you know, in the in the business, right? And so is my new, um, am I adding new logos? The second is we look at um, productivity. And so, so productivity rep on both fully onboard reps and then ramp reps, right? And so we're looking at productivity. How's our productivity go? The third item that we're focused on is then it, it switches a little bit, goes to the customer. Like, like, talk to me about retention. How did our gross dollar retention rates, how did our net dollar retention rates go? Uh, and so, so that is another big component of our top line. And then fourth, it a little bit shifts to people, I would say. And in, and in this era, we're focused on um, how's the attrition look in the company and how did we do about adding, you know, new employees in particular in the quota caring areas or the go-to-market areas where we wanted to add it. Those are the four things we really look at from a company perspective. The fifth would be cash, how we burn yeah. it cash-wise, right? Sure. Um, but, but for me, a little bit... That's always the easiest because, because if I get the bookings right and I get my retention right, um, I, I'm not going to miss on cash going out the door, right? And that we can manage, right? In any, our, our, our place is typical of any software company, 75% of the expense is headcount, right? And so if I'm controlling headcount, I'm controlling spend. So I usually know if I'm missing cash, I'm missing because I missed the bookings number, right? Or the bookings were later in the quarter and right. I didn't collect the cash on it, right? Yeah, right. But those are kind of the five things that we look through. So let's stay on that because a lot of times if you're a brand new sales rep, maybe a first time, you know, leader at the, at the first, you know, first management level, you always wonder why is this company just constantly on me for my forecast, my forecast, my mm. forecast. So from a CFO perspective, can you talk to the salespeople out there as to why forecasting and accurate forecasting is so paramount to the business? You've kind of alluded to it already, but you know, let's be more explicit. It creates huge value. That's why it's so important, right? For your ability to forecast the business. Um, it means that you have an ability to then invest in stuff uh, without having to like, you know, think about it sort of after the fact a little bit, right? So, so if you can forecast anything, right? You can forecast the weather, you're better off, right? Like, like, okay, I'm going golfing today because it's 75 degrees and sunny here in Boston, as opposed to, you know, my rain this afternoon. I don't know, right? Um, so the ability to forecast stuff gives you the flexibility in which to make the right, you know, management decisions. And it right. is critical as you get 
to the public markets, right? The, most companies do not go public or go public later because of the, their ability to forecast their business, right? And you can miss a window, right? Uh, um, but but you know when 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 we have a company ready and lined up, I think to get to the public markets, the, the for six months before we are focused on the forecastability of this business. And am I going to be able to speak to the street? about what our numbers are at, right? That is the most important thing. So, so I think for two reasons, it's really important. One, it helps you plan the business. And two, it really helps you then scale the business, right? Yeah, and on planning the business, as you referred to earlier, it's all about headcount. So if I forecast very high and come in very low, then the consequences are that I overhire, right? And if I forecast too low, and I come in really high, then I may not have the people to support the business because you didn't hire. That's right. Yeah. Perfectly right. And particularly, it becomes even more important because you got a ramp time, right? And so you got a ramp time for quota carrying people, right? Um, and so you got to forecast, you got to be looking almost six to nine months in advance with this ramp time, right? And so therefore, forecastability becomes even more important. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of young sellers out there, Jim, they get a little gun shy. Uh, they understand that forecasting is important. They get a little gun shy. They, you know, when back in our day, we called it sandbagging, but I don't want it to be so negative. It's like just people don't understand the ramifications and how that, you know, how uh, you, you really think you're going to do X, but you forecast X minus because you don't want to be that person that misses the forecast. And I've seen some cultures that just do such a poor job of this forecasting pressure and, you know, they make it all about compliance and they don't really educate. They really don't educate the sellers on what it actually, what it actually means. And so how do you deal with that? Like you'll get a number and then it just rolls up. It just rolls up to your bosses, the sellers out there it just rolls up to your bosses and then they've got to make these big management corrections what advice and dialogue do you have in the sales organization on how to really build a good culture around forecasting accuracy and specifically, you know, forecasting low can be just as negative as forecasting high and missing. Yeah. And, and I think you need to penalize might be too strong a word, but to the extent you have somebody who's constantly forecasting low, you have to educate that person on, hey, look, the, the, the fact that you're 150% of your forecast for three quarters in a row, you know, it, it means that you're not doing a good job forecasting, right? And and that's, you know, I'm a, not quite as big a problem as if you're 50% of the forecast, right? right. Uh, because I haven't gone out and spent on it. But but a, a part of your job as you as you mature as a person and as a manager is to be able to forecast a business because of how important it is. So, so we, we try to push through, like, it's not just about you making a number, but it's like, you know, us helping, you know, run the company and, and, um, you know, invest in the right areas and develop them as, as professionals around it. I've always thought of accurate forecasting as from a sales leader perspective, that it tells me how intimate you are with your people and intimate with the accounts that they're calling on. And when you are forecasting really low or really high all the time and you're always off, you're kind of signaling to me that you don't really, you're not really intimate with your people. You're not really intimate with the accounts. Otherwise, there's no reason, if you are, there's no reason to 
not yeah, have an accurate not. forecast. Yeah. Yeah, not to say that it's luck, but it's kind of a little bit luck, right? That 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 that, that your numbers that are coming in, then, right? Yeah, and I think it's it's also good. You guys would know better than I, but but the ability then, okay, if I know Johnny Mac is going to be under, like I need to go make it up, and who can I go to that says, can I make this up? I need a half a million, I need a million, right? And you you call around, and you got it. You got a million, you know, and and if people are intimate enough with their deals, they can figure out, okay, yeah, I I can try to go push one this quarter, right? Um, and that that's what I think creates a well-run, you know, sales or go-to-market organization. Yeah. So when I want to stick on this for just a second, you have so much experience, and I found you, Jim, back in the day of being so um, easy to work with. Because you were sales, you were so sales focused. This is, as a matter of fact, at PTC, I actually learned a lot from you from like negotiations perspective. And, and um, you just had a, a really great disposition because you understood the business really well. In your experience, what are some of the great characteristics that, that drew you? What I'm trying to do for the listeners is to say, how do you build value in the company by being financially mature? Um, by having a good understanding of the business and that type of thing. So when you think about great sales leaders and great sellers that had some of these characteristics, what would be some of those that you've seen over the years that you would advise people to emulate or to model themselves after? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and again, it's from my perspective as CFO looking at, at, at sales managers or sales VPs, right? I think it's what I always appreciated both out of you guys and I think out of most of PTC was the ability to sort of work with one another, right? And so that people who were able to collaborate and work, right? And understand, hey, if I take some risk here, like I, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna cover it on the back end, right? You know, and and I'll help you, right? And so I always felt like you need to work with people, right? Uh, and in some quarters, I'm going to come and I'm going to ask you for something, right? Like, like I got a cash problem. I need you to go, try to go help me, you know, accelerate some collections, right? I'm going to ask you to make some calls for me. So I always, it's people that you can collaborate and work with. That was one. Two, I always admire people that then hold their sales. They, they own it, right? The managers own it or the VPs own it. So they own the number. And they hold their people accountable, like to the number. And it's not a series of like excuses about like why, you know, if in the event I missed the number, well, here's the 10 excuses why I missed the number. And none of which, you know, are, are, are them looking in the mirror, right? Um, that is, so oh, HR didn't give me the, the headcount. Oh, I lost, you know, Susie, right? And she was, you know, uh, um, uh, fully ramped. I lost her because competition's too tough out there. It always becomes, I, I hate people who push that ownership onto somebody else, right? That don't, that don't own it. So one, and it's just that, that collaborated, two, that they owned it. And three, that they were like business, they had a business acumen, right? It wasn't just about getting the deal, but it was sort of about getting the right deal, right? And making sure that, sure, you got to discount stuff, but like, be fair. Don't discount stuff where, where you know, we're, we're going to end up, you know, running out of business around it. Um, uh, but understand the business implications and then be able to sell those business implications to the person on the other side, right? I mean, when you're negotiating deals, 
people understand you're not negotiating to go out of business. So if you explain to somebody like, look, like I go do this deal at this run and I got to give you this much implementation and this much professional services, I'm going to lose like, you know, 50% on this deal, right? I can't do that, right? And so therefore, this is what we got to go do, right? And if people really are built in or are, are committed to a product and understand that the product is what they want, they're, they're going to work with you on that, right? And so that's what I always appreciate it, that negotiating skill of like sales managers. And, and, and as you said, you, you know, I, I appreciate you saying, Johnny, that you, you learned some from me, but, but I learned a lot, you know, through dealing with, you know, sales you know, uh, reps, sales managers, sales VPs, like, like you all over the years on how to do that. And I've been able to translate that into other negotiations that I might do, right? Um, whether it's the lease of a building or the purchase of a building or the purchase of fixed assets, right? And so it, it's refining that negotiating skill. Are there some things that you're seeing today, just things that you really like about the way people are negotiating and then things that you're... Uh, that people are being just kind of lazy about. What are some of the, what are some of the top things that you're seeing uh, around negotiation skills today? Because you probably get involved with that a ton. I, I I see. What I always liked was transparency around it, right? And so directness and transparency. And it's a little bit of what I just spoke of. If you get this level of discount, here's what it's going to mean to me. I can't do that. Yeah. You know, or I can't take that forward. That transparency is better than you're trying to, you know, that me trying to figure out your game and you trying to figure out my game, right? And so that's what I really like. And I guess on the other side of the coin, you know, I, I hate the, you know, whether it's whether it's a buyer doing it, like, you know, you run into these procurement places where they just say, okay, I want 50% discount. Like, like <laughs> anybody drawing the line like that, you know, yeah. it's, it's like... They're they're just playing an ego game, right? And and that I don't appreciate. And 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 those conversations with me tend not to go well. And I get a little bit like too emotional or walk away from stuff, right? And you probably gotta hate when people come to you late in the process and they've run out of their negotiating prowess or their skills and they're in a jam, and then they come to you and they expect a miracle to happen. So how how often does that happen to you as a CFO? Yeah. Um it, it, it doesn't happen that often, but I actually don't mind it because when it's coming to me, John, it tends to be that they're coming to me asking me, um, hey, would you mind um, like reaching out to this CFO, right? Our champion has done all this stuff, positioned it really well. We just need the final pushover, right? Can you reach out to the CFO? So CFO to CFO. Yeah. And yeah. that works really effectively, actually. It tends to, right? It comes and goes, but I would say like 75% of the chance that's an effective conversation because CFOs understand, you know, that, that, Hey, a salesperson has done everything right, gotten the deal to that point and they need it to the final thing. Right. And supposedly it's, you know, sitting on your desk. Right. Uh, now back to my negotiation skills, I expect that at some point that comes around. Right. And so, so, you know, I expect at some point that that comes around and, and I've done that with CFOs that, we own their product and, and, you know, they own our product. Right. And, and, and they expect me to do something and I expect them to do something. Right. But that's, that's the way life is, I guess. So Jim, basically on that topic, when external salespeople try to sell, you know, a, a really good size deal to drift, do they ever reach out to you as the CFO? No, no. Uh, which is interesting. So do they ever prepare 
as part of the investment? Do they ever prepare a cost justification that they're trying to sell internally and get up towards the sea level? Do they ever, have you ever seen a powerful cost justification built by an external salesperson? Well, that, there's my answer. Right Whoa, there. man. <laughs> silence is everything. Silence, silence I think, is I think we got another podcast coming, Johnny Mac. Oh, yeah, Holy exactly. smokes. I, I even think that, like, because we build our own and give them to, you know, people, you can get a return on investment or a cost justification to kind of say whatever you want, right? And and so it, it tends, you, you really need to be realistic, you know, with them. So, I, I can't say I've seen, you know, yeah, uh, I, I've seen, you know, a lot of good ones and and, and not recently, right? That, if there's an are. internal champion, as you alluded to right. earlier, that could yeah. be in charge of the potential implementation and that person did a, you know, three or four day or whatever it is, proof of value. Yeah. And then from that proof of value could put the before scenario and after scenario into a powerful cost justification. Yeah. That might catch your attention, but you, definitely you does, just don't right? see it. Yeah. yeah, that that definitely does when it's an internal champion doing it, right? And and people can help, you know, that that and our salespeople do it. They help their internal champs like build it, right? But I think it really needs to come internally, right? I I, I wouldn't not respect again might be too strong a word, but I wouldn't respect anybody from the outside coming in here and building a just uh, cost justification without knowing like our business really really well. Right. So they have to have the internal champion. champion. They have to have the internal champion that's intimate with your business. And then it's powerful. Then you'll, then you'll, it's powerful. Yep. And then that person owns it as opposed to, you know, um, a sales rep, but, you know, from the outside. Right. Right. Yeah. Johnny Mac, we got a ton of, uh, we have a ton of great golden nugget contents here. You, uh, I want to, I want to take a quick stab at summarizing. Uh, unless you have any outstanding questions that we didn't get to. No, there's so many good nuggets in here. So let's see, let's see how you do on the summer. All right, let's let's give it a let's give it a whirl here. Uh, Jimmy, you started the conversation with the top three concerns, the top three things you always have on your mind of managing cash, when to scale, and build to scale. And then you 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 gave us a heads up. There's like only three outcomes that companies are going to have one of three. They're either going to fail, they're going to get acquired, or they're going to take a company to a public market or to a, or to a, another form of, another form of funding in growth. When you describe growth, what I liked about the way you describe growth, it, it wasn't just growth of revenue. You, you, you described it three ways. You described growth and profits, growth and people and growth in revenue. We had an awesome conversation on headcount, and um, you you looked at headcount as the uh, as as the business to scale. So for our listeners out there, when you're it's it's not an open trough. When somebody asks you about the headcount that you need, it's expected that you take a company perspective and you take a you take a look at how the business will scale, not just your own department needs. Um, you talked about headcount and you said productivity really counts for you. And it's, it's a big weight for uh, looking at headcount needs. You expect a give and take from a headcount perspective. Um, you expect people to understand the short-term and long-term implications and be able to describe it. 
Um, you expect a conversation around what happens if we don't invest in those heads. And so the headcount conversation was not only what you're looking for, but what you would expect in an organization to bring forth to you. Um, you talked about a frugal culture and uh, you talked about spending wisely. I really, really was interested in your technique that you've been using. I think you said you've kind of perfected it now at Drift of experiments versus all in on big bets. And I just think that that's a really, really good perspective to have is have a plan. If you want something inside of a company, have a plan that has both the ability for an all-in discussion and has the ability for experimenting and then having milestones of success to be able to be smart and further invest in that. Same old story. You've been through the movie before. It was helpful for me. I really wanted to talk to you about the economy because I personally freaking out a little bit about it, but uh, um, you gave me great advice on having patience and just being agile and then understanding that like we probably have a we probably have an immune system that's been through this before. No, uh, no pun intended with COVID or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not minimizing that. But when we've had patients and we've been agile before in these scenarios, uh, things have turned out very well for us. Great companies. You gave some advice on great companies and what to look for. You said business model proven to scale. You said dominant in the market. You said innovative, you said collaborative, and you said strong leaders at the top. Johnny then took you down a path of looking at metrics and you said, hey, bookings and new business and new logos. This is also for sellers listening out there as you're looking at your business. If you have responsibility for all these aspects, you should be prepared to represent your business in this way. Bookings, new logos new business uh, versus existing revenue from customers, productivity, customer retention, attrition, adding new employees, and then obviously cash is what you were also looking for. We had a big discussion on forecasting. You said it's incredibly value to uh, impacting the value of the company. It helps us invest. It helps us plan. It hugely impacts our ability to go uh, to ask investment from either public markets or from private markets and just the confidence associated with that. Um, low forecasting is just as big of a problem as missing your forecast. Or I, yeah, I don't know if they're just as big, but it's, it is a problem. You don't want to be, you don't want to be the sandbagger. And when we really wound up the conversation talking about characteristics of financial acumen for our listeners to just really start to model yourselves around these characteristics, collaborative, expect give and take when working with the financial organization, be collaborative, own what you own. Uh, if, you're, if you have the number, own it, the excuse department is closed and be accountable for it. Um, have business acumen. Uh, getting the deal versus getting the right deal. You want to be known for the people and for the organization that have the ability to go get the right deals. We talked a little bit about negotiation skills. We talked about being, you know, directness and having transparency. And then you said uh, uh, what has worked pretty well is the CFO to CFO uh, uh, in negotiations and planning for that. The last thing we talked about was cost justifications and how you value 
internal conversation, internal cost justifications are valued way more for you as the CFO than somebody doing an external cost justification. Johnny Mac, how'd we do? I think I'd rate, give you an A plus. You did a great job. I want to never told me when I was working for you that I was a plus listener, buddy. Never. Sometimes you got an A. Sometimes you got an A. <laughs> but never, I don't know. Maybe you did get an A plus once in a while. All right. You know, I want to just add one thing. One, and it's important for the sales leaders out there to hear it is he makes investments, and most CFOs and CEOs and CROs do the same. Is they make investments in the regions that are most productive. Those people, yeah. continue, those regions, or those leaders, continue to get additional headcount and additional investments because their productivity level is higher than the average productivity across the the company. So those people keep getting more investments. Really important Love it. to understand. Love that. it. Jimmy, before we do some rapid fire questions, did we miss anything that you would have expected us to, you know, our audience, you know, what we're trying to do here on revenue builders. Did we miss anything uh, that you would have expected us to talk about? No, I don't think so. You guys did a really good job. That, that, that's a yeah. lot of info you summarized, John. John yeah. You're going to have to go take a nap after that. After you <laughs> in your head. Hey, I'm just ecstatic that we got through this uh, revenue builders podcast with uh, Jim Kelleher without, uh, without any uh, Kaplan stories about how badly he, he, he did some of these things back at yeah. PTC. Johnny, take us to the rapid fire. I'm going to do a little rapid fire here. Jimmy, you ready? Yeah. We have four questions for you. What's your ideal day off of work? Hanging with my wife and kids, to be honest. Yeah, just did it. It was just in Central Park. I have two kids in New York City. I took a train up, um, you know, went to dinner with them on a boat cruise and then hung in Central Park for half a day. So. Nice. Something like that. It's cool Sounds for me. good. Favorite meal? Lasagna. Gotta be lasagna. Yep, lasagna. Meat lasagna. Meat lasagna. Any yep. regatta cheese in there? Uh, yeah, I think lasagna comes with cheese, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go, Jimmy. Get after him, Jimmy. Threw, Get after he, him. He threw that right back at me, didn't he? Didn't he? I, it was an unprovoked it. attack, but I loved it. Was it. Unprovoked attack. Hey, Jimmy, yeah. in in Boston, in that I forget what you guys call it. You guys, you guys know that it's like a little Italy. I call it North like a little Italy. Yeah, the North End. North End. All right. So, so what's your favorite Italian restaurant to get that lasagna there, or do you not get it there? I don't get it there, to be honest, John, because I, I live on the other side of the world from that place. Um, yeah. Yeah, but there's, they're, they're all great restaurants down in that area. But, but yeah, I'm on the other side of the world with that. You got it. All right, Jimmy, favorite movie? Caddyshack. Caddyshack. Good one. Wow. That's a new one, but that's a good one. I like that. I, I, I caddied for, you know, eight, seven, eight years of my life. And so, so then that, I appreciate the humor and uh, must have watched the thing 20 times. Best concert you ever been to? Ooh, I'm not a big concert guy, but um, uh, two things. I saw Springsteen at Fenway um, when, yes. when Clarence was still alive. And then two, even better, I saw Springsteen on Broadway. Um, oh, I thought oh, you were going to say wow. that. I heard that was awesome. Tremendous. Really was. Yeah, yeah it was wow. really tremendous. Yeah. So, that was so hard to get tickets to that. Springsteen shows. You must have known a guy who knew a guy who knew somebody, right? Actually, no, they had a lottery. And so I like, like won the lottery in which to be able to, to, to buy the tickets. And the short story to it, I was in a board meeting and, you know, all of a sudden I get this text that says, Hey, you can, you know, order your Springsteen tickets. You have 10 minutes. I was like, 
shit, I got to order my Springsteen tickets. So they were doing the presentation and I'm over there ordering the Springsteen tickets. But yeah, I got my Springsteen tickets. Wow. Good for you. All right. Jim, we'd like to ask you about your favorite charity. I know that you're chairman of the Boston College Ireland Business Council. Is that your favorite charity? And then why? Uh, it's not that, John, but it's something that's associated with that. It's, it's something called the Irish American um, Partnership. Um, and um, what it does is it invests directly in the school systems in Ireland to create opportunities for, for, for Irish kids. And so it gives me an opportunity to sort of put money. I'm, I'm Irish. I'm, I'm dual citizen. Two of my kids are also dual citizen. Um, my grandparents were off the boat in, in the early 1900s. It gives me an opportunity to invest back um, in kind of from whence I came in the land that I came. So my wife and I supported um, a couple of local schools down in Tralee um, in which we're putting money back into the school system via the Irish American partnership. And mm-hmm. Mary she runs it here in Boston. She does a great job of that and, you know, working through the peace process and uh, et cetera. So it's, it's a great charity um, for Irish Americans. That's say great. the uh, say the name of the charity again, and we'll make sure we list it in the show it's notes. Called, it's right. called Irish American Partnership. I happen to have their 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 water bottle right here, but the Irish American Partnership based in Boston. Got it. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes, Jimmy. Thank so, you very much, gentlemen. Cap, maybe you want to say goodbye to Jimmy. Wish him well. Hey, hey buddy, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to to be with us. <clears throat> thank you for great partnerships over the years. Um, keep doing what you're doing, buddy. Everything you're touching is turning to gold. So thanks again for being with us and great to see you. Nice to be here, guys. Nice to be here. If you're ever up in Boston, Johnny, look me up and and Mac, let's play golf when you're back up. Yeah, I will. Grateful for you doing this, Jimmy. Thanks a lot. Happy to do it. Everyone. Thanks a lot for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.